Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rollman. It's been a long time since we rock and rolled. It has been. Has it been since San Francisco? I don't think we've talked since San Francisco or something like you that. You were in a, weren't you in a red room in, in St. Louis? Oh yeah, I was. Oh my God. It was the murder hotel. Man, yeah. both, both hotels, but like the first one I thought was terrible. That's the one we talked in. And then the next night I was like, wow, last night was the four seasons compared to this day. We got out of there, my daughter and I, like before eight o'clock the next morning, people at the desk were like, are you checking out? We're like, yes, bye. It's just so bad. So bad. You know- it's funny, I, so when I was 25 years old, uh, or 27, I can't remember how old, I drove around the country by myself for like five months, and I would do a lot of camping in national parks, and people were always really freaked out by that, that I would camp alone. And I felt really, really safe in national parks. But every time that I that I got a cheap roadside motel, I felt certain I was going to be murdered. I don't think there's anything creepier than roadside motels. Well, this wasn't that so much. It was a place in Wheeling, West Virginia, which just happened to be sort of like a good stopping point between St. Louis and New York City. Like we could have pushed on to Pittsburgh, but we just decided to kind of get whatever. We, We stayed there. And it was just like, you know, the town is one of those towns, sort of like Tacoma, Washington and a billion other towns that like, at one point you could see that it had like some interesting vitality, who knows why, whatever the industry, what kind of Rust Belt town it was, but like buildings with interesting bones. And then like we're driving, yeah. we, we didn't get in till like 11 because of course we stopped at the nearby town first to see Maverick because priorities, hello. hello. And um, so we're walking, we're like driving past these sort of like stately old bank buildings and there's black and white posters of like people from the forties saying, come back to wheeling, but everything's empty. Like, oh, that's so, sad. And so you've got this big hotel. Like, come back, come, come back, back to wheeling. Back, it's, like, it's like, I know it's just like this sad little, little kid whose mom left and they're like, come back. And there's like, there's a couple of stores like across, there's like a candle store and a donut shop. Neither of them ever opened like the woman at the desk tells us. And like, if you don't have people coming through your hotel, it's not going to, it's not going to be too peppy. Anyway, um, I'm coming to you now from, as you can see, I'm up at my mom's, I'm upstate New York in this uh, barn that is sort of a living space that I'm uh, redoing. And that's kind of nice. Maybe we'll do, I'm threatening, I think we're threatening to do a video episode pretty soon, Sarah Hepla. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll do it yeah. from here. Yeah. Going to unmask ourselves. That's right. And they'll see that That I'm actually not, a dude. I know, that's a, yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, people already probably already know that about me. <laughs> if that's disappointing to anyone. But, um, you know, before we, we went on the air, you said to me, why aren't you saying this on the air? So I'm just going to say it. So good morning, everyone. First of all, Sarah, what is the name of this podcast? It's Smoke em If You Got It. And do you know, I was listening to Jesse Single and Katie Herzog the other day, Blockchain Reported, and I did not remember that at one point in each episode, one of them says to the other, What's the name of this podcast? Oh, is that right? Uh, yeah. So I totally subconsciously ripped them off. Sorry, Jesse and Katie. We love you. Um, in any case, uh, you have a big, big, big story that you published on our beautiful Substack yesterday about Deb Heard. I what is the exact title of it? The agony and the ecstasy. The agony. Yeah, the agony and the ecstasy of Deb V. Heard. So I had kind of read it mostly yesterday, but I'm was had a crazy busy day yesterday. So this morning at five o'clock, I read it very, very carefully because I wanted to put it also on Paloma Media. But I this story is so 
magnificently written. And here's here's the thing about stories like this. So Sarah and I both come from the alt-weekly world where you were allowed to have 8,000 words, 10,000 words. Your editors let you run and they let you, but, but you, it had to be, it had to be beautiful. It had to be absolutely beautiful. It had to be one of those stories that from the minute I read this once, the minute you start reading, you could tap your foot through the entire thing because it just mm. keeps you in the beat. This story was so trenchant and lyrical and tender and also mm. walking the grounds that I'm I'm sorry, no other American journalist did. Guys, I'm not being hyperbolic here. Yes, of course, I'm a fan of Sarah Heppelos and our podcast, but I'm also a massive consumer of media. And this story, we got 7 billion hot takes. We got a lot of cranking. Yeah. We got a lot of sort of, you know, just the sort of predictable things that you would expect. And now in the wake of it, we're getting like, everybody's trying to grab their little piece of grizzle off what's left on the bone. Like, well, you know, <laughs> bisexual women had it bad. Or, you know, I don't know, left-handed tennis Croatian player women had it bad too. Like it just, it doesn't stop. In any case, Sarah Hepla, I am first of all, so incredibly jealous because these are the kinds See, of stories. You always, you talk about what? how you're not jealous. I'm, well, I'm jealous. Okay. I'm jealous because I am the writer of these kinds of stories too. And I have been writing yeah, a lot. I wrote, I wrote a ton last week, but I have not bitten into an 8,000 word feature like this in a while. Mm. And now I'm going to, but I want to say, so people, I don't even know if they still have them around, but the AANs are the same as like the, the magazine awards, the national magazine awards, but for alt weeklies, I've won a couple of them. I think you've won a couple, Sarah. Sarah, this is an AAN winner. And it is the story that if people want to really sort of understand Depherd in a very humane way, there this is just all what did I say yesterday? It's all shoe leather and heart. And it is, it is, it's a triumph. Sarah Hepla. To you. You're so good to me. Well, and, and I, I, I just want to say that, um, well, and, and I say that in part because, I mean, I, I appreciate all of that. And, and I want to talk a little bit more about the piece and what I think I did differently than other people and, and what I think is, is worth, um, digging into a little bit more, but I don't know that I would have done this piece without you. You were, you inspired me to do this, um, with, the idea that you sort of make the coverage you want to see in the world, you know, and uh, that's new for me. I went through some stages of grief during this story. Uh, I almost always do with a big project. <clears throat> you know, you you start out and you're like, this is going to win the Pulitzer. <laughs> and then you <laughs> get to like, a point. It's shit. It's just it's all total shit. shit. <laughs> you get to this point where you're like, I'm ruining my career. I never should have done this. I wish I just kept my mouth shut. Why did I say I was going to cover Depper? So you go through this, all these cycles. And one of the cycles for me, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit more. It's like, why am I writing this for a Substack? So, so this, and, and, and I'm proud that we put it out. You know, but at the same time, it's like, this is the kind of thing that in another era, it's, it's actually, you said 8,000, it's actually 10,000 words. Okay. And, you know, back in the day, magazines would pay a dollar or $2 a word. 
yeah. you know, and, and this is the kind of piece you would get 10000 or $20,000 for because it, it involved a certain amount of like, I flew myself to Fairfax. I did a ton, like hours and hours and hours of watching testimony, sometimes two, three times, um, backstory, synthesizing, like it was a massive kind of like, like informational crunch. And also proper um, economical use of first person. Right. Yes, I did. I, I'm, I'm trying to get better at that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it my was eye, my it was, eye didn't spill yeah. all over the page. <laughs> and and I, I'm, I'm proud of that because I, I do believe that that personal connections are are often um, a value add in these kinds of stories, but they can they can hijack the narrative. So finding that balance is is important for me. Um, but, you know, I, I just thought, like, what happened like, why is this not being covered the way that it used to be? Why, like, there is not a, is there really, there's not a market for this. And, you know, you said on Twitter, uh, no other journalist, um, as crazy as that sounds, has covered this story like Sarah Heppola. I am honored by that. And I, but I spent a little time yesterday thinking like, but Why? But like, why not? And it's so sad to me because, you know, look, my ego is always going to want to be the best, fastest, most incredible, best, best, best. But but then there's this other part of me that has looked up to thinkers and writers all my life, cultural commentators that help me shape the world. And it's like, where have they gone? All right. So what, what, what the f- F happened. So I have a a couple of things to say about that and also a little pitch. So one of the reasons is because it's not monetizable anymore. You and I, I wrote, you know, a hundred stories for the LA Weekly. You were on staff at at different places. You had a salary. Um, You were able to support yourself writing these stories. You also happen to be incredibly fast. I mean, the trial finished a couple of weeks ago and you have a 10,000 word story out. That's, you know, that's because you'd already been writing in in your head and working it and writing short pieces. So you were able to do that. I felt slow. I felt really slow. We always feel slow, right? That's how it's, it's like, oh, I don't, I never feel like I do anything. People are like, are you, are you high? But anyway, right. um, so it's not monetizable. I'm going to say something very, very, very sad that I, I, I heard yesterday from a former editor of mine who I haven't been for a while. He was a very good editor, very smart guy. And he was reading some of my stuff. He's like, I love what you're doing and what you're creating. Just like you said, you're create, we're creating a place to put this work into the world. And he said, I know two people that committed suicide last month. These were very successful journalists one at the Times and one at the New York Times, one at the LA Times, with oh, small geez. children because they they despaired over being able to make a living. Now, obviously, there were other things going on. Other things, this, yeah, this what sure. happened. But we, there is absolutely no doubt that our, we are old enough to have made a very good living, or in my case, a good living, not a very good living, uh, yeah, as mine a writer. Yeah, was like mediocre. Mine um, was like really... <laughs> But we, <laughs> but it we, was a living, and I was so proud of that. You have a living, so um, we have. We're really lucky that we have like the best people in our lives that are doing fabulously well on on Substack, including Jesse and Katie uh, over at Blocked and Reported. I'll put the link to them. You should definitely follow their stuff if you like our stuff. You'll love theirs. Um, and the Fifth Column guys, Bingo, um, who have been able hmm. to augment what they do and get. Um, you know, pay, readers, uh, viewers, listeners pay for it. And we have about 11% of the people that are subscribers paying for our Substack. I'm going to put in a really big pitch here and actually really hard, 
heartfelt pitch. I was writing down some notes this morning about what I need to do this week. And one of the things is like, we really do need to monetize this better um, because we want to keep doing these stories. I want Sarah Heppola to keep writing these stories for you. I want to keep going to San Francisco to write about the Boudin story or go to Ukraine like I did. You know who gets us there? We get ourselves there. And then people love it and they dig it. And sometimes they'll throw me on a television show or I'll write a piece for reason. But basically it's our initiative and our cash. Guys, hit that pay subscribe button. I would really appreciate it. And we're, I mean, we're going to be doing this stuff anyway. So you might say to yourself, why don't you pay for it? I'm doing it anyway. Well, because because it's a great idea, that's why. And also, we're gonna we're gonna start pretty soon. We have a magic number we've been trying to hit. And when we hit that number in terms of subscribers, we're gonna be having more stuff um, behind paywalls, including some video, including some just special episodes for you guys. So think about it. That's my pitch. Okay, didn't mean to derail you from talking about your story. I think one of the dangerous myths of the internet is that things are free and that everything is free. You know, things don't come for free. When they made the internet, this free marketplace, one of the things that happened was that clickbait evolved. A sort of uh, gladiator arena of, att- of you know, attempts to get attention. None of this, none of this was free. Um, we pay for it one way or the other. And so the question is, how do you want to, how do you want to pay? You know, people, the markets, I love, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much a free market here, right? I mean, the market will tell you what they like. We're really lucky. We're two months old in a couple, in about, in about a week or so. I think on the 22nd, we'll be two months old. We're, we're doing fantastically well. And that is not the case for everybody. And I'm, I'm ambitious. I want to keep doing this stuff. People like it. And, um, I, you know, they'll tell you they'll like it with their, um, with their generosity. Um, and so are you saying that on the eighth day, God didn't make, make the internet? <laughs> Did he? I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, let's get back to your, to your story. Yeah. What struck you about it? What was, what was uh, the most interesting part to you? Well, first of all, just from a purely, um, from a writer's point of view, it's beautiful. It's just beautifully written. Like I said, it just like I writing, writing for me is very sonic. Like I got to hear, like you, you got to build that lead. You got to have all that music in the lead. You got it. Like you have to hear your sentences. I could hear your sentences. Like I could hear everything just clicking. Um, I just, it just like, I wrote down a couple of sentences this morning, the collective delusion that fame and riches and everything you want might actually, might actually, what is it? Might not be, might Sorry. Oh, I just really messed that up, Sarah Heffler. You're going to read the no, quote. No, 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 no. That's funny because um, actually I went back and forth on that sentence. It, it doesn't say it's 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 the collective delusion that fame and riches and everything you want might actually be what you want. But right. I went back and forth on whether or not it needed a not. No, so it it's didn't. funny that you added it right. and it doesn't. I, well, it didn't. But it's I have it kind I, of. I wrote this down and I don't have it there. I'm like, Nancy, did you forget a word? I mean, this is okay. So first of all, this is beautifully written, even though I stumbled over it. And so did you, but, um, it's, it just makes you think it's like, right, exactly. This is sort of one of the germs of why we are where we are. Okay. When you're talking about this story, you know, it doesn't really matter. Like this happened June 7th. This happened May 15th of a different year. It's that, yeah, these things matter, but they don't. What is the animating principles here, the animating dreams? What got us here? 
And that's, that's it. I mean, that is one of the things that, that got us here. He, you know, you look at these people, they have everything, beauty, riches, fame, and I'm, I'm okay. This is, this sounds trite. Like, well, it doesn't buy you happiness. Yeah, but that's not it. It's like you tried to get this thing and then you got it. And now it's like, like the upside quote, fame, mask, fame is a mask that eats into the face. Mm-hmm. It's just was so beautifully done. Well, and, and I think, you know, there, there was this old Jim Carrey quote that he said something like, I wish, I, I wish everyone could get rich and famous so they'd understand it doesn't fix it. I think there's a certain, um, psychological scrambling that starts to take place when you have all those things and it doesn't fix the hole inside of you. So you start upping the dosage to use a Johnny Depp term. And, you know, maybe it comes in, maybe it comes in more alcohol and drugs, which is certainly true in this case. Maybe it comes in, in buying your own private Island to get away from everyone. Um, Maybe it comes in bigger penthouses. I mean, this was this, I was really struck in this case of the way that it was like this, this tour, like this houses of the rich and famous kind of chef's tour through these, these beautiful penthouses and these red carpet galas. And then underneath that, there was a freaking horror show. I mean, an absolute horror show of of throw down fights and ghastly scenes where, you know, somebody's finger is missing and he's scrawling in blood and fresh paint on mirrors. Uh, I, I just, I was so struck by that contrast. And I think one of the dangerous things that's happened in our culture is that we have presented fame and celebrity as a noble or, not not even noble. It, it, it's just like everybody wants it. Well, it's also and, like, oh, they were able to climb the mountain and I wasn't. Like they yeah, have I mean, I, I, I had a line in there that got cut out at one point that was like, you know, that basically social media had become a celebrity DIY kit. You know, that that mm. that there used to be this idea that you'd be discovered by some agent. That's Amber Heard's story. It's Johnny Depp's story. And now there's this idea that you can just sort of bypass that entirely. And at the end of the of the story, you meet a, a kid named James from court. He's a sweet guy. He sort of, you know, stumbled into Internet fame by virtue of being in the courtroom that day. And, you know, he's going viral and he's going to follow that. And this is the, the the sort of, I don't blame anybody for doing that because you and I have spoken about this. My obsession with being famous and being a celebrity when I was younger was so blinding. And I now find it to be one of the biggest delusions of my life, along with the idea that drinking was necessary for creative life. You know, those two things were so central in my youth. Um, Drug and alcohol use as a path to an extraordinary life and the extraordinary life being one of celebrity fame and f- I never cared as much about fortune, I have to say. I think I'm weird that way. Um, I grew up with a lot of rich kids. I was a middle-class kid in a rich environment. And I saw the way that rich people were really unhappy. So that was one lesson I learned really early on, was that 
riches did it seem to be doing what they should do for other people. So I didn't have that much interest in the riches part of it. But the celebrity and the fame and the adulation and the being the center of things was just like such a white, hot, you know, like arrow in me. Like it was just always pointing in that direction. I, I had the same thing from the age of, um, I actually wrote, I wrote a piece about this that I will put on our, I will, I will run it, uh, here. Uh, uh, I can't remember the, the title of it, something in the mirror, but I, I very clearly remember my father taking me to go see the movie, My Fair Lady. I mm. was four or five. And, um, I remember coming out with him. No, sorry. Wow. In any case, a movie because now I'm I'm getting I'm crossing it with Mary Poppins. But in any case, um, oh, I I, I came out I I came out and that night I stood on the top bunk of the bed, my three year old brother underneath, and I started singing the song because I have one of those yes. brains that remembers every song for it, it. It does me no good that I have this talent that is not really a talent. But um, and I there was a camera. And oh, that the the essay is called "The Camera and the Audience," and um, and it was there was a camera there, and that camera was there from the age of four until maybe I was in my early twenties. It was there. It was there all the time. It was always yeah. watching me. Now, yeah, you I, mean I, like an imagined camera in your yeah. mind, like you were basically it, performing being, in a movie where yes. in which you were the the yes. the protagonist. Yes, yes, yes. yes. It's it's and 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 I'll just say one more thing. I think I've written. I, I have a whole book of essays about LA that I haven't published yet. Um, but there was literally the delusion. Th- this is true. I drove across the country at 24 because I'd met my my daughter's dad in South Carolina on a movie, and he lived there. And I went out there, and I fully, well, I don't know fully, but pretty much fully expected that someone in a big car, a man probably, was going to drive in drive up to my driveway. He's going to open the door and he was going to say, get in. I'm taking you to your destiny. I swear to, I swear to Christ. I'm sort of surprised it didn't happen. You're a hottie. (laughs) And I've also said, and I know we've said this before, I am so utterly thankful that none of this ever happened, like it would ever happen. But um, yeah, it's a weird delusion that actually comes true for people. If they're like, I I didn't have the talent to do that. I didn't have the looks to do it. I wasn't like practicing, like taking dance classes or whatever it is you need to do these, you know, but um, yeah, but it happens. I've I've also written a a lot about this incredible self-consciousness I had in my 20s around the idea of whether or not men were paying attention to me. And this idea that for me, the camera was following me all the time. And so I was constantly wondering if men were also watching me. And I had, you know, some weight issues and some mixed up things around like self-presentation in my 20s because I was living in, in Austin. And so I was like wearing like a sack every day. And I was like, why don't guys hot. think this? I'm hot. Don't they think great baggy gray hoodies are hot? I don't understand. But anyway, I remember this time I was in Las Vegas for the first time. I actually stayed at Circus Circus because Hunter S. Thompson had stayed there and written, um, I stayed there. We're in loathing in Las Vegas. Awful. So it was awful. And I was wandering around the strip and I was in a bar and this guy was kind of looking at me and I was like, oh, I'm going to, 
I, I, I also had a camera and I was, I was trying to be like kind of a photographer at the time. So anyway, I said like, can I, you know, like, can I take your picture? You look really interesting right there. And he was kind of talking to me and, and then he goes, he goes, Hey, I'm not interested. And I was like, oh, okay, I don't need to take your picture. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not interested. Like I don't, I'm married. You like what? And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 I can't, I can't talk to you anymore. And I realized later he thought I was a hooker. I mean, a sex worker. Oh, oh I, okay. I, I got to follow. We're, we're getting off track. Because it was Las Vegas. And so uh, I, I heard later that like uh, a lot of the, the ladies of the night, you know, work the, the strip alone and they come up to these guys that are alone at the bar and they sort of start these in, things. In and baggy was, sweatshirts. Yeah. No, well, I think what? I was wearing something else that day, but you know, I'll tell you what, as I walked away, I was kind of like, wow, somebody thought that somebody would pay for sex with me. Like, I swear to you, I found this because I was myself. Yes. <laughs> like weirdly flattering. I was like, oh, my God. All right. I, I, I don't I, think I, I don't think the marketplace will support that I because see. my. my my self-esteem was so low. I mean, I'm 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 such a I'm such a more confident 47-year-old woman and I look so different and and act so different than I did when I was 24. I just sort of wandered into every room kind of expecting that men wouldn't pay attention to me because that that had been my experience for a long time. So I don't want people to Google me and be like, what is she talking about? She looks like a cheerleader. Oh, speaking of that, and then I'm going to tell you my little my little mistaken for a hooker story, um, or at least the one I know about. Uh, I was reading <laughs> your piece, and I there was like a montage of, um, of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, and I was like, wow, Amber Heard really looks like Sarah in that picture. But it was actually a picture of you. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> I thought it was her at first. Um, uh, I'll tell you my, so I, uh, I wrote a book the, when I was like a young, my, just to become a writer. My sister-in-law was also a writer. We were both at this magazine and we got offered to write this book called The Real Real World, which was about the TV show, The Real yeah. World. And there were four seasons. We had to interview anybody. The fourth season was in London and they were going to fly us over to London. And, um, me, we had to stop in New York and we both had assignments in New York and she, my sister-in-law had written a lot about the Four Seasons Hotel. She knew that, anyway, they put us up in the Four Seasons Hotel in New York in a flipping crazy penthouse with three bathrooms and two, it was crazy, okay? TV's over the tub, it was beautiful. We had a party for all editors, it was very, very smashing. Anyway, one night, it's late, we're having a last drink at the Four Seasons Bar, and we're wearing, it was the, it was the era of Betsy Johnson. We're both wearing these tiny little skin-tight Betsy Johnson yeah. minis. Like, they literally, like, like, Basically, your ass was hanging out. So we walk to the elevator, and the security guards goes, "Ladies, ladies, no, sorry." And we're like, <laughs> "What? Like, is the elevator out of order?" He's like, "No, no, sorry, sorry." And I, we had our keys, and we're like, "Ha ha!" We just shook our keys at him. I mean, we were staying there, but yeah, he thought we were. I was going to say high class hookers. He just thought we were hookers, but we were not. No, alas. yeah, no escorts allowed. No, I, you know, there was a really fascinating moment in. I feel like it was the aughts. Uh, was like the high tide for for provocative clothing. You know, it's just the thong era and the tiny napkin dresses. And you know, when I would go out to bars, especially in Dallas, where women tend to wear like just gigantic heels, like really impractical heels, you would never get away with wearing them in New York because you can't walk in them. You can only oh. park your car and hobble into a place. Oh. And, 
So like I would I really would look at these college students and and it would be like lady of the night or college sophomore. I cannot tell. a board game. Um, so as you know, I'm not a heel wearer, but I do see people wearing these high heels and I'm like, how are you like, I guess people get used to them. I mean, you, you do. I, I definitely do. I've worn, you know, cause I'm five foot two. So I've always wanted, um, to have a little bit more of a, of a height advantage. It really bugs me to be so short. I think this is a, this is a, f- <laughs> another topic for another time. I think this is a form of powerlessness or, 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 or less power that people don't think of a lot, which is that when you walk into a room, you just, you, you have a diminutive presence. And so a lot of my personality is built around overriding that. I and mean, I always liked wearing heels and I'm quite good at it. Yeah, um, you are. And, and I, I can do it for hours and hours. It's done not great things to my, to my knees, but, but, you know, look, um, I suffer for glamour, but anyway, the point is that people do get better at it. It's like anything else. Um, I do think that it is a kind of, I mean, it's, it's on the level with sort of foot binding. Um, but at the same time, uh, there are a lot of us, especially in the South, especially in car cultures, that enjoy the sort of sauntering, the sauntering walk that it creates. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird, bizarre thing to wear heels. And it's also like, to me, one of the fun pieces of costuming that you get to wear as a woman. I mean, you know, it's, it's very telling that when either like, guys are going into drag or cross-dressing, you know, what's the first thing they put on? Yeah. Is heels. Yeah. Well, so as you know, I'm tall, so it's not, I don't have that feeling. How, how tall are you? I'm 5'8". Um, oh, so I'm not that tall. tall. Yeah, um, I was going to say, I don't think yeah. of you as that tall. But. Um, but um, I have worn, like, I have some little low heels that I wear a lot. They're like an inch and a half and they're rubber on the bottom. It's like I can run, I could literally run 10 blocks in them without a problem. But I have a few times worn like some pretty high heels, including actually. So Cheryl Strayed, great writer, wrote Wild, Dear Sugar columnist. She is a casual friend of mine in Portland. When I lived in Portland and I was, she and I, some other girls were having like a clothing swap. And I brought these black heels that I never wore and she liked them. And she had these pretty high heels. They're almost four inches high, but they're easy to walk in. They're more platform. Yeah. And I took those and she's like, oh, I, when, when I, when Oprah Winfrey made her book wild, the book of like another Oprah pick, there was some big party or something. She's like, I wore them to the Oprah party. So I have worn those shoes and they do look great. And I have to say, I'm like probably close to six feet in them, 5'11". And they do, you do, I do feel kind of hot when I'm wearing those to tell you the Absolutely. truth. Absolutely. It's, it, you know, it makes you, it makes you taller. It makes your legs look like, I have very short legs. So I'm always trying to cheat, cheat the eye on that one. Um, you know, by the way, I think 5'8 is like the perfect height. Uh, my daughter's For a, a woman. is 5'9". I kind of like that. I've got my one inch platform, uh, platform van so I can, uh, can, I can, uh, see eye to eye with her. Okay. I want to get back to your story for a minute and it ties okay. into what we were talking about. So we're talking about the beautiful lines in your story. This one I've already told you, but I'm going to say it here for the listeners, guys, go, go read Sarah's story. It's here. It's amazing. And you should also record it. You should do a recording. I will. Of it. I yeah, will. Yeah. It's yeah. long though. Really long. Um, so you were it's talking 50 about 50 minutes according to Substack. Yeah. I'm so sorry, yeah. everyone. So, so you, you, um, 
you were talking about boys and beauty, and you you said of Johnny Johnny Depp the low testosterone of their beauty, and I I found that to be such an incredible line. I don't know how exactly it it pertains to to Depp as a man, but as a youth, yes, he was so he was the boy. He was the boy. boy. You you could He's put your hands, boy. his hands on his hairless face. I'll uh, maybe I'll include the picture I sent you today of Tim, which is my my daughter's mm-hmm. late dad, who I think has a a lot of similarity to Depp when they were when they were young. I I think. Um, there, I remember being a little girl and being so freaked out by secondary sexual characteristics on men, meaning beards, chest hair. Ooh, yeah, um, there Still was a. I was no, I I like both of them, but but when I was a little girl, it really freaked me out. And um, there was, I remember there was like pictures. Baryshnikov was really big because that that movie White Knights had come out, and, and you could always see <laughs> his penis underneath the, the, <laughs> the tights. Yeah! You could always no! see the outline of this little coiled snake no! inside his it! pants, and it completely. <laughs> Freaked Stop. me out. This is the bingo card where I, I squick you out with with sexual talk. It really freaked me out, and I remember like I I had a Ken doll, and I was so relieved that the Ken doll had this like smooth plastic. And I was like, "That's what I just imagine." Like that's that's, that's the, what my dad has. That's, that's what my brother has. That's a man I want. I want this like smooth. The oh, smooth, man. hard shellac um, surface when you reach down in there. So anyway, um, yeah, it's it's something about I, I really think as a th- these are the ages of 10, 11, 12, and you are coming to terms with your for me, you know, I hit puberty at 10. So I, I had boobs. I, I had all the other stuff that went along with that. And it was quite destabilizing and i think you're you're starting to get this idea of the world as a darker more complicated place than you once realized i mean there's going to be this thing called sex and it's coming for you and i think it's very interesting and not at all surprising that the the gateway drug to this for a lot of uh young women young girls are kind of boy girls you know, like, like they are pretty boys um, in the mold of boy bands and teen heartthrobs. And they have the feminine beauty of girls inside the boy body. And it's it's super interesting to me. I mean, you know, like there there was a there was a really lousy piece that I sent you from The New York Ma- Times magazine that was basically uh, by a Parsons professor that was Ugh. analyzing beauty in both the uh, Depp and Heard. And, he, and this woman was sort of saying, you know, Depp, for Depp, his beauty was, um, it helped him. And for Heard, her beauty worked against her. Well, I mean, you're going to have to do a lot more convincing than she did in, in the piece about that. But one of the interesting things is like, I don't know that boys' beauty helps them so much when they're younger. I think um, it depends on where you grow up and what in what area you grow up in. But Johnny Depp would have been a small, girlish young boy. I mean, a lot of those boys get picked on. You know, if you have long eyelashes and girlish features, um, whereas being a beautiful young girl 
it, yeah. it will change your life. Well, and, and I and I don't want to say that that Depp's beauty isn't hasn't been like a, a hugely big part of his rise to fame. It obviously has. It's something I I comment on in the piece, and and it obviously works for him at some point. But I'm just saying that that a lot of boys who have that pretty boy nature, uh, it ends up working out for them as adults a lot of times. Um, but when they're younger they often get picked on for stuff like that. Well, I think it's also that it's sort of uh, girls, it can be sort of like the raison d'etre, right? You, you are a beautiful girl and now this is going to be this thing and it's going to be your currency and it sort of can can move you forward in addition to whatever else you do. You could play tennis, you could be good in school or bad, whatever, but it is the thing. Boys, they can be pretty and even be acknowledged by their dude friends that they're pretty. But what counts in boys is speed and power and yeah. agility, Strength. right? Yeah. And, and and that is, I mean, you you had mentioned to me um, the Jonathan Haidt making down conversation. I'm going to put a link to it here because I did listen to it the other day. And Haidt is talking about like very, very much when, you know, what do boys do? They play team sports. They are, they're, they're kind of built to kind of like do war games and to, to be active. And that is what is, a currency. I, my brother was a phenomenal athlete, like the best natural athlete many people have ever seen. And it was his currency. I mean, this is, you know, how you got through the world. And then Heights like, and what do girls do? They talk, they make community, right? They, yeah. they, they go in little groups and they, they clot up and they talk. We just, we operate differently. So yeah, even if like you're the cute boy and of course the girls like you, the boys are going to like kind of maybe give you shit about it and it's fine. They're probably a little jealous secretly, you know, nobody wants to be not cute, I don't think. But yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not the same sort of thing when you're a kid. Of course, they, you know, then you get a little older. You know, I, I was looking at that one picture of Depp. Uh, it may have been the one that was alongside of you were smoking. Ugh. He was so beautiful that it's... the only person I remember, of course, besides my own child, looking at there's an actor named Billy Worth, W-I-R-T-A. Oh, sure. Okay, so Billy starred in this movie called War Party that my late, my ex, my daughter's dad starred in before my daughter was born. And we were up in Montana for three months on location in, in Browning, Montana. And Billy, I lived in this motel they just built. I was living next door to Billy and I saw him every day for many hours a day. He was so beautiful. And I hung out with the guy. He's a New York kid. Like we, we were friends. I could sometimes not look at him. Yeah. He was so beautiful. It was like, it was too blinding. It was like looking at the sun. So there, you know, when you've got this level, I mean, we're all like, you and I are attractive people. There's no doubt, but people can actually look in our face and not melt, you know, yeah, but many, many have managed damn it, You know, I mean a few, but you know, but, um, you know, there is a level of beauty. I, I, I hate to say this, but I love to say it. My daughter kind of has this thing. She's, mm. she's got a level of beauty that is, it's, it's a thing. Like it, it is a thing. And, um, you know, Deb had it and I don't know if her had it. She's very, very, I don't think she did. I don't think she did. I thought she was like homecoming queen pretty. Yeah. She's you know, pretty. she, she Sexy. won some, she won some small town beauty pageants, but you know, it's like, I, I have a line in there that, you know, she was Hollywood she was Hollywood beautiful, but generically so. And I think yeah. that's, that's yeah. right. I mean, she, she just, she looked like everybody else that comes to that city trying to make it. Whereas Johnny Depp had uncommon beauty. I mean, uncommon, his eyes, yeah. his face, 
Yeah. He looks haunted. He's gorgeous. I mean, and the fact that he was always trying to bury that face is, I think, one of the more interesting things about him. You know, his primary roles that he takes on are him masking, you know, Edward Scissorhands, Alice, uh, Jack Sparrow. Um, um, uh, I, I don't know Alice. Role. I don't know what Alice. What's Alice? So Alice through the looking glass. He does a it's, it's oh. one of his Tim Burton movies. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And and um, he, he's wearing sort of like white garish makeup. He's playing the Mad Hatter. And, well, you don't want to post on it. I mean, who, you know, obviously people do want to post on the beauty, but. It's more than that. I always felt like he was really trying to be seen for something other than that. Yeah, sure. And, why not? And, you know, and I think one of the smart things he did was to not make his beauty the central focal point of his acting career. And I think there are a lot of these fights with that he has with Amber Heard where he's he's saying to her some kind of like shitty things like, you know, hey, you know, if you wear that dress, people people are only going to remember you for that and and you know, you don't want to be one of those one of those actresses and and it sounds real real crummy. But I, I think one thing to keep in mind was that he was also potentially reflecting on his own career where he did not use that as his collateral. You know, that was not what he did. He he let people see his talent. And I have to say, I, I heard from commenters <clears throat> that Amber Heard was actually a talented actress. And so I watched a few of her movies. One of them I couldn't find. It's called All the Boys Love Mandy lane and and but i watched some clips from it i I thought she was actually not good at all and Mm. i I thought in the rum diary she was only okay i thought i watched some clips from adderall diaries and i thought she was lousy i I have to say i I do not please point me to what somebody thinks she's doing that's special i haven't seen it but michael moynihan our our good friend and on the fifth column and vice journalist um he is a big giant fan and friend of Martin Amos who wrote a book called London Fields, which apparently uh, Amber started and he said it was, it is maybe the singularly worst performance that he'd ever seen. And it just absolutely, it made the movie unwatchable. I'm not trying to get down on her. I I don't actually think I've ever seen her in a movie. Um, But, but apparently she wasn't great. I tried to find that movie actually, because I'd heard a couple of of things about it that made me very curious. I mean, one of the things Michael had said in my interview with him was that it was, he thought the worst movie he'd ever seen. And so then of course, like just like a idiot that wants to smell a rotten milk, I'm like, Oh, I want to watch that. Um, But I couldn't, I couldn't find it. I could only find a couple clips and uh, it didn't see indeed seem, seem fairly like her performance just seemed very phony. I I don't. That's sad. That's sad. I, I would just say this because I was, I did do a lot of acting and I was very good on stage. I was good. I was a good stage actress. Got a lot of lead parts. I was fine. not a bad stage actress too. I Let's do a play. Bad, not good in front of the camera. Not no, it's good. Too, I, I be- couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't disappear. I couldn't disappear into it. So when you're on stage, you can kind of play to the rafters. Like I have a lot of expressiveness. Like I was always a good comic uh, actress Mm -hmm. because I had Mm -hmm. a lot of like physical comedy expressiveness. Mm -hmm. And so that was really good. I actually played Pygmalion in My Fair Lady. You know, it's it's the it's the play version. I played Eliza Doolittle in that and uh, in my in our senior play. But um, I cannot do camera stuff because it really you have to let the camera in instead of projecting out. Yeah. 
Yeah. I can do it now, like on news, like I did a reason, um, I'll put a link to it, a reason episode the other day after I was in San Francisco. I can talk to the camera as a news person, no problem. No problem. I, I can be on camera all day. That's totally fine. But to be acting on the camera is not working. Um, Okay. A, a, a couple of things that I want to say before we, I want to talk about the Amber Heard interview that's, that's going to be aired. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a big sit down interview on Dateline tonight, but it has been teased all week on the Today Show with He's Savannah. Doing, yeah. Guthrie. They've had like small segments on right. the Today Show. Right. 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 And I want to talk about that a little bit okay. as well as the juror interview that was oh. on Good Morning America. I don't know about any of this, please. Oh, yes. It's fascinating. But before we leave my story, I think one of the things I want to say is that for about five to 10 years, I'm not even sure what it is, I've had so many ideas and thoughts about Me Too and power and celebrity that I've wanted to express. And one of the really cool things about this story was that it gave me expression for a lot of these complicated ideas around, you know, for instance, one of these ideas that I that I say in the article is that this stubborn part of me too is that there's so much evidence that stays locked up inside you. And it's just a matter of self-report. And so basically there is no sense of like one of the things that's always bothered me in these stories is that there's no hint of ambivalence. There's no hint of conflict. You know, the, you know, what you were really wanting in that moment, it's all just sort of you saying, I felt this way, but I know from being a human being that I can feel that way and feel something else at the time that the human heart in conflict is sort of one of those or one of my, that's, that's all I want to write about. And so for somebody to come in and say, you know, like for instance, the way that she describes her meeting in the trailer with Depp, where he, you know, she's wearing a bathrobe. She's, you know, she's married. She's married to a woman at this point. And she shows up in a bathrobe and they're drinking wine. And he says they made out and she wanted to stay overnight. And she says, oh, no, no, no. He lifted my boot up with the back of his, he, he lifted my bathrobe up with the back of his boot. And I just laughed because I didn't know what else to do. You know, and it's just like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. This yeah. is actually a woman wielding her power. She's showing up in a bathrobe. She's settling in, talking about blues records. She's she's wielding her power. Don't play the role of Little Red Riding Hood. Don't play well, the role of like, oh, I don't know. I have no idea. This is so much. So I wrote down this line where you wrote, you said, there's so much evidence stays locked up. Uh, within a stubborn matter of self-report, your inner conflict, your hidden agenda. And I think this is exactly what has really bummed me out a lot and pissed me off about some of yeah. these Me Too stories, which are, you know, she, it, it basically, she, her line by saying, I laughed, I didn't know what to do, basically paints her number one as the naif, right? I don't know. Right. Oh my God. I, I, I don't know what to do. Number one, number two, no agency whatsoever. None. I'm just a leaf in the wind here. Number three, it, it's sort of, what did I write here? It's completely passive, right? And it's also like, that is not the way we are. Women are not that way. This is making women absolutely having zero control in every single situation. This is just not, I mean, I'm exaggerating again to be illustrative here. But it it's like, so... it's, why can't you go in and say, yeah, I went in there. 
we were drinking, we were having things, we made out or we didn't make out. And like you, you went in there because you had an attraction. It's okay to have an attraction and to act on it well and badly. And then like figure it out later or don't, but to go in and say, I, I just, I didn't know what to do. That is basically setting up a little box where men get to play this role and women get to play this role and that's it and good night. And that's bullshit. That's one of the bullshit. Things, one of the things that bothered me about the Me Too dogma was that at some point it started to sound like Victorian era mm-hmm. critiques of women. You know, like, oh, they just, they don't want sex. They're not looking for anything like that. You have to protect them. It's not up to them to decide whether or not they have sex while they're drunk. The man needs to decide whether or not they can consent. I mean, it, it, it veered into this kind of creepy protectionism that I felt like we had spent so long exactly. pushing back on. I wrote an article that we've, uh, I'll link it here again, the, the uh, Andrew Cuomo one. It's like, get out of my bedroom, Andrew Cuomo, when he passes the law, which says, well, you know, you can, you know, press sexual assault or rape charges later if you don't remember things. And I'm like, well, what if the guy was drunk too? Like what? No, they're setting up a dynamic in Me Too where there's always going to be the victim and the victim is always going to be the woman. And why? Because either A, because it's a man. So, okay, they axiomatically, he's got more power. Well, yeah, physically, that's that's true in physically, most cases, right? Physically, that's true. Okay, or B, because Johnny Depp is more successful, or C, because he's older, or D, because, you know, you're of some uh, marginalized class and he's not. You can always come up with ways to say why you were the victim. Well, why? how about I put on a bathrobe and went and had wine with Johnny Depp because I wanted to. How about that? Yeah, I, mean, I know. What's wrong with that? You know, so when so when Depp's lawyers were interviewed by the Today Show earlier this week, one of the things they said that they thought her downfall was, uh, meaning Amber Heard's downfall, downfall on the stand, was an inability to take any responsibility for her own behavior. And I have to agree with that. She just refused any accountability for anything down to the fact that like she would say on the witness stand that op ed was not about Johnny. The only one who thought it was about Johnny was Johnny. That is nuts. This is completely nuts. nuts. This is completely nuts. Why would they have gotten her as an ambassador? She was not particularly famous. I mean, what this is just, it's, it's, it's again, it's like, I don't want to take, if I don't take responsibility, then someone else has to, let's have our villains. We've got these villains lined up against the wall. They're all right here already. They're just ready. I'm look, I think reading your article, I found out some things that did not make Johnny Depp look particularly great. And I think you were very yeah. fair in that. There was one thing that kind of bummed me out again, because you say I'm, I'm squeamy about certain sex things, but when he called her a cum guzzler to his, his attorney or something, I just found that like, I mean, I found it, I found it kind of gross, you know, and, and demeaning. And I mean, you could, I mean, sorry, you could say that in a funny way too. I mean, you can use words are are completely elastic, but he has that gonzo spirit that Thompson and did. And it's just, it, when it's good, it's good. And when it's bad, it's bad. Very bad. Yeah. I didn't like that. It's very bad. It's it's it does not look well for him. So in in the interview with Savannah Guthrie on Today Show, and I don't know why she chose Savannah Guthrie, who was not somebody I knew, but she's apparently a morning. Yeah, she's uh, a morning host. She's the I think yeah. she's one of the hosts of the three hosts of the Today Show. 
Yeah. She's so famous. Yeah. So one of the things that Heard said was, you know, the op-ed was about me lending my voice to a bigger cultural conversation we were having at the time. Well, I'm going to call bullshit on this. It might have been her adding her name or her brand or her face to a bigger cultural conversation, but it was definitely an evident, like, as supported by the evidence, not her voice. No, no. And, and this is something that I that I bring up in the article, as we've brought up many times on this podcast. You know, her empowerment was ghostwritten, was the way that I say it in the piece. Fantastic line. Fantastic line. Fantastic. She, she keeps saying, I want to use my voice, and she keeps behaving like a puppet whose lines are being written for her. I do not know what this woman's voice would sound like. I don't know who she is underneath. I mean, one of the reasons I think that line, that Updike line, which is celebrity is a mask that eats into the face is so powerful. And I uh, use it all the time because I, I, I need it. I find it useful. Um, is that it really degrades who you are. The, the, the sense of who you are as a real person, it, it eats away um, the sense that you have anything interesting to say and you become a projection and it's it's very confusing to the soul to just be sort of the carrier host for other people's characters and hopes and dreams and you know I, I, so I don't know who this person is underneath all this stuff but I just I she keeps using this thing you know like she says at one point I guess a defamation suit is meant to take away your voice and it's like what, no what, what voice has she used? No, I mean, not. when it's I remember not. that when it came out, I, I didn't pay much attention to it because it didn't seem to mean anything. But on the rereading, and we'll put a link here if people haven't read it ad nauseum at this point, it is such it is such kind of lawyer speak. It's very, very dry. There's really no, there's no, it's, it's, it's ideologically driven. It's kind of dry. It's, there's no music in it. It's just, it's just a terrible terrible piece. I, I was actually buying a bottle of rosé in a, in a store up here the other day. And on the radio, there was something talking about how I could hear Amber Heard uh, saying, well, you know, um, what was she saying? She was saying, I, you know, that op-ed was lawyered. I had many lawyers look it over. Like, what? I mean, it was written by a team of lawyers. And why would you have, anyway, I, I don't think, I don't think the ACLU, when they wrote that and chose her to be the ambassador for it and chose her to be the, the face of it, I don't think that they realized that the momentum of don't ask any questions at all right now of Me Too at a certain point was going to change. You had a great line about this in your article. Oh, what was it about? Um, anyway. Times move on. We don't feel the same way we did in November 2018. We're going to look at that through a slightly different lens. And that the ACLU didn't realize that is just bananas. Well, I think one of the interesting things here that I, I really never got a chance to, to say in the piece that, that was, uh, as I was listening to her, this Amber Heard this morning, she talks a lot about being defamed by social media. She talks a lot about how unfair the trial of Twitter and and TikTok and Instagram was. And all of that is true. 
But what she's not saying is that's exactly what she was taking advantage of in 2018. This is a situation where you live by the sword, die by the sword. You know, she thrust that column out into a culture that was going to clap and say, absolutely brave, beautiful. And I don't think it occurred to her that there might be a time when people were going to say, wait a minute, what do you mean uh, public figure for domestic abuse? Like, well, like what's your evidence here? What is the <laughs> and line is you inf- have in the piece? You're like, if you say this, you kind of guarantee that people are going to say, wait, what? What right? is that line? That's- well, I, early on in the in there, I yeah. say something like, you know, that the that the social media bonanza was a sign of cultural rot, but it's also a pushback to a culture where questioning women had become verboten. And the idea, you know, the the idea here is you can't say that lays tracks for someone to eventually say that with delight. Exactly. That's it. When you tell people you can't say that whatever it is, people are going to be like, really? Yes, I can. And they're either going to do it publicly or they're going to do it privately. And that's, that's where we find ourselves. That's where she found herself. I mean, this is what parents learn. Parents learn this all the time. You know, the the thing that you forbid becomes so unbelievably fascinating to the child. And so we have done that for years around the way we talk about women. You can't say that. You can't say that. You can't say that. And it was working for a little while, but the the dam was going to be set loose at some point. And I think that's part of what you see in the gleeful nature of the YouTube commentary and the TikTok commentary. I mean, it's just like, I get to say whatever I want, you guys. You, right. you know, you you can't tell me that I can't ask a woman if she's lying or say, you know, it, it's the idea that we were trying to control this uncontainable river that is the internet and culture by throwing some some red tape around it. And saying you can't ask that. It's just, it's, it's, it's absurd. And it's also just, it's just, it's like, oh no, we won this war. That's it. We won this. And you're now, you're not allowed to, we won this. And the way we won it is that you can never say anything about it again. It's like, this doesn't make any sense. And also where's your curiosity? And why do you want only one, one set of people forever and all time to be the right people? This is just ridiculous. This is, this is a very strange sort of, um, prejudice almost. One of the things that I could never get in there, I spent a lot of time at the end of the piece trying to, you know, I, I, I have a reference to the idea that they'll keep trading roles and it'll be a kind of doomed, yes. doomed yes. waltz. Yes. And, and yes. I kept, I kept trying to make it, make an analogy to the idea that culture was in a doomed dance, you know, that it was going to be one step forward and one step back. And that's the way it is. And that's, that's just, you know, that's what it is to live. You, you don't just move forward, you you move around. And that movement is, the movement's beautiful. Maybe you don't like the way the dance is going, but it's going to change. I, I so, will change. And I think also, I think it does get better. I mean, it does. We can look at almost every metric except for, you know, gas prices at the moment <laughs> and look at mm-hmm. how things have gotten better, you know, for, um, you know, for women, for, uh, you know, 
different minorities that had different troubles in the past. Things do get better. And I think, I think that there was an overcorrection with Me Too. And I understand where it came from. I understand that people yeah. want to, you know, they want to kind of right the wrongs of the past. And this is right. what we do. We make a little bit of an overcorrection. And then you say, okay, now we're going to actually kind of like treat women just like the human beings that they are, not like little, little, like little uh, fragile butterflies that we cannot ever let anything bad happen to because that way sometimes the world is bad and sometimes people are going to make bad decisions and sometimes terrible things will happen. But a lot of the time you just take responsibility for your own actions and try to make the world a better place. The thing is women are so strong. They are so strong. Oh my God. You know, they give birth for God's sakes. Um, I want to talk about the juror interview. Yes. And this was a, an interesting bomb that Good Morning America dropped because they're the sort of the number one morning show. And, and, and today had all this Amber Heard stuff, but Good Morning America had the scoop on the juror. So the, the guy's voice is sort of um, <clears throat> disguised and you don't see his face and stuff like that because they're not supposed to. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I, I, they're not supposed to do this. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so this is all, uh, the, these are the things that he says. You know, he says a lot of her story didn't add up. And a majority of the jurors felt she was the aggressor. And all of them were very uncomfortable with the way that she was looking at them constantly. Right. And we talked about that. The way that she went from crying to ice cold in a sort of matter of seconds was very freaky to some of them. Mm. Uh, someone actually used the word crocodile tears. Mm. And mm. You know, they felt like Depp was the more believable witness. He was emotionally stable throughout it. He he was a, you know, a likable guy. This was something where they felt like they were both abusive to each other, um, which was what I always thought. I always thought mutual abuse was exactly the right diagnosis of this. And what the jury decided was that, yeah, they were both abusive to each other, but it didn't rise to the level of what she was claiming in that piece was the idea that she was a survivor of domestic abuse, which is exactly what I had said when we were talking about the verdict. You know, why was this defamatory when it, it seems almost true on its face that she was a public figure representing domestic abuse? It's because that is that is a recasting of a story that was much more complicated. And if you say that, like, I'm the sole survivor... That, and and you basically make this other guy look like a bad guy. And then we hear all this audio that implicates you as the instigator, somebody that hit Depp to keep him around, as she told, as she told her um, therapist at one point. I mean, this is somebody that had real fears of abandonment. And I, my heart really does go out to her on that because I, I have similar trigger things, you know, like I will not be in my right mind when I think that the person that I love is going to leave me. And I have so much sympathy for her, but she just does not do herself any favors when she goes up there and says, you know, so in, in the interview with, with Guthrie, she says, you know, Guthrie's, at, uh, Guthrie's questions were, were, were good. Her answers, I thought, her answers were just lame. And, and so Guthrie asks her, you know, like, okay, well, we have this audio that says, like, you instigated this and, uh, you know, what all this. And she's going, well, you wouldn't believe the things that you'll say when your life is in danger. 
And you won't believe, you know, I was in an enormous amount of physical, you know, emotional stress. And can you not just say, I screwed up. I did things I shouldn't have done. I was pushed. I pushed back. I want to change. I... I'm an adult now and I don't want to behave like this anymore, but that's not what she's saying. No, because she's saying they made me do it. They made me do it. He made me do it. He made me do it. The, everybody like she puts blame everywhere else, but on her. And that is what a child does. It's also sadly, you know, I, again, I don't know any Amber Heard movies. I don't know if she's taken films that was worse challenging to her as an actress. I don't, I don't know. You know, sometimes you see actresses and actors, they take like really weird routes. You're like, wow, that was kind of ballsy, you know, to play really against type or like Johnny Depp, you're kind of hiding yourself. She is choosing a, what she believed was going to be a safe island of supporters, right? I have my story. It's the popular narrative right now. Women right. are victimized. And I've got a lot of people that are that very, very firmly believe. And we saw most of the think pieces by the blue check marks and in the mainstream media were very, very much on uh on her side. And as you said, like they didn't know how to pivot. They just don't because they've they've basically this is where they're gonna plant their flag. And okay, that's where they're gonna plant their flag. But it is, to my mind, so much less interesting and it will not be as rewarding for her. We talked about, and then you wrote in your piece about how had she taken the opportunity in 2018 to actually write a piece, kind of reflecting what you just said, which was like, you know what? Yeah, it was, it was rough. And I did this and he did this. Things are messy. Let's do better or whatever, whatever kind of piece she wanted to write. That could have been interesting and could have really moved the needle. And she, she could now, she won't now because there's all kinds of legal reasons why she won't and, and, you know, money and, and book deals or whatever. But instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to go be quiet for a little while. I'm going to make some interesting acting choices. I'm going to like do some walking and thinking and be a larger person than just a victim. She could have like a really rich and rewarding life if she would take those risks. And it is a little risky to say, I was wrong or I was a liar, but I don't think she's going to do that because I think she has enough support in the world, uh, in the kind of the mainstream thinking to say, no, we still want her to be an avatar for a wronged woman in the culture. That is a sad, that is a very, that's for me, that would be a very itchy sweater to have to wear. That's a very itchy sweater. It is. It is. It is. Um, you know, she says in the interview to my dying day, I'll stand by every word of my testimony. Um, uh, you know, even within the interview, she, she has this way of exaggerating that I think is very human, but you have to be so careful about this. So one of the things that she says is that, you know, she's talking about the humiliation of showing up in court and she says, you know, imagine this every day you have to, you have to drive by three, four blocks of people and they've got signs that say burn the witch. Okay. I was actually at Fairfax. (laughs) Unlike most people that are going to watch this. I can tell you that first of all, it's only one block and you know, maybe the last week, maybe the last week it was three blocks, but it was only one block and it was like 
for for weeks it was like 10 people because this is before the 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 court you know the trial had really gone yeah. wild um i'm not saying there wasn't one day a sign that said burn the witch i don't know what i can tell you is i didn't see anything like that there was total disinterest in her and absolute adulation for Johnny Depp. What? So what I think she's doing here, and I think it's a very human impulse, and I sometimes participated in it sometimes, and I sometimes participated in it sometimes, and I don't think I should. It, it's, it's, she's telling you the, the story that matches her feeling. In other words, it felt to her like she was driving by signs that said, burn yeah. the witch. But what actually was happening was she was slinking in from the other side. It was absolutely humiliating. And somehow that's not enough, but no. it should be. That should be enough. It, 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 it was humiliating for her to be in that courtroom and to be around, you know, but it, it's one of these things like it's like your friend that that got a hundred great reviews of um like a hundred people on twitter said that's a great piece and then then one person said like what a piece of crap and then when you ask them how it's going they're like yeah. everybody's telling me it's a piece of crap yeah. so and it's because the mind latches on to that negativity I, I just i am guilty of this and i but i try to check it in myself so what would be more powerful to you let's say you're just hearing you you're you haven't studied this trial like you did and now you're listening to an amber heard and she's like you know Going into that, driving up past those people every day, I felt as though I were driving past hundreds of people carrying signs that said, burn the witch. Is that more powerful? Or is I had to drive past people with signs that said, burn the witch? Oh. I think it's the first one because she's telling you something about herself. She's saying that's what it felt like. If Amber Heard had said that, I have respect for that. I have respect I, for I that. I totally agree. I, we all know what humiliation feels like and what embarrassment feels like. And we know to say that, that's like very illustrative, right? Instead, she lies. This is not, I mean, maybe she did. Maybe there was one sign that you didn't see. It's possible. Yeah, who knows? But, you know. Anyway, I will say that Mia, my 12 year old friend that I quoted a couple yes, times yes, in yes, my piece, yes. the sweet 12 year old with magenta hair, yeah. she was on TikTok uh, explaining that that she didn't see anything like this. And, and I'll I'll link to her TikTok in our uh, yeah. in well, our episode notes. You know, she's 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 fact checking. <laughs> she's fact checking. Mia, Mia's fact checking. <laughs> yeah, she's so um, cute. Um, do we want to do? We yeah, have a little we, bit of time left. I want to talk about something else. You know, I want to uh, wait. Hold on. Ready? Mm. Happy birthday oh to you. Happy birthday, Sarah. Tell them, Nancy. Tell them about your birthday. That's cute. Uh, that is. It is. I. I got twelve years of sobriety last Monday. I'm cry. So uh, it is not my, as we call it in the program, belly button birthday, what? but it is my sobriety birthday. And it was really wild. I I got 12 years of sobriety um, on the day that I was, probably the day I was writing longest. Uh, I, I sort of was going from like four in the morning till seven at night working on this Depp Herd piece. And it was, it's, I've so many thoughts about this, but, you know, writing about 
Depp's drinking and Depp's addiction story. Um, obviously, it's somebody else's story, but it feels so similar to mine in the sense that ever since he was a little kid, he was reaching for something to to help him escape, which is my story too. You know, I I started drinking cans of Pearl Light when I was like six years old. Um, he had a Betty Sue's nerve pills. And the extent to which you see this in stories of people that wind up in the rooms is is pretty astonishing. You know, one of the things that you're that you're trying to do is negotiate what can feel so overwhelming to a child, which is that you feel so deeply and you care so much and you just don't know what to do with that. And that there is this thing outside you that you discover at some age that can fix you and numb you. And it feels like discovering a superpower. And so as a, as a little girl, to me, finding alcohol, you know, I never did drugs because I, I think I was just so in 100% love with booze. I see you only had eyes for need booze. It. <laughs> I never yeah. needed anybody else. Booze was the one man for me. I was a one man woman. I didn't need anybody else, baby. It's just you and me. It's you, baby. It just did everything I needed it to do. He went the other way in the sense that he did at basically every drug under the sun. But, um, no, I never did that. And I think, I think that, um, when you get sober, one of the things people misunderstand sometimes is that they think I didn't like drinking. They think that, uh, I'm like, like I must think drinking is evil or I must think it's really bad. It's all of these. It's the opposite. I think drinking is one of the greatest leisure drugs ever been that's ever been invented. I think if it it will always confuse me if somebody doesn't drink, that doesn't mean I don't like it. I mean, I I like hanging out with people who don't drink now. Um, Drinking was the greatest love of my life Mm -hmm. for the, for 25 years. And when you walk away from that, it's, it's not, it's this everybody's story is different um bingo i'm crying bingo. <laughs> um you know everybody's story with this stuff is different and i i've definitely met people for whom quitting this stuff was a huge relief um it wasn't for me it was a one of the greatest heartbreaks of my life loneliness lonely for it I didn't know how to operate without it because alcohol had been a constant companion. And without it, I felt completely desolate. And I didn't know who to be. You know, alcohol is a is a mask that eats the soul. <laughs> because you lose who you are. I mean, I had such I had such a sense of my own identity wrapped up in I'm the funny one at the party. I'm the entertaining one at the party. I didn't know how to do those things without alcohol. And, you know, one of the really painful things for me towards the end is that my friends were telling me, you know, you're not funny. You're sad. No. Well, and you're not entertaining. You're embarrassing. And, it, it you know, it's like everything had 
pivoted. All the power had boomeranged in my hand and it was all working against me. And this is, this is the life cycle. Like this is, if you stay a drinker, a chronic drinker long enough, this is what happens. A lot of people don't, a lot of people don't ever have to quit. I don't have investment in other people quitting drinking. I think this is one of the tragedies, um, or no, no, I did not pass burn the witch signs. Um, no, this is one of the small (laughs) sadnesses, small sinking sadnesses that I experience in sobriety is that when people find out I'm sober, they think, oh my God, she thinks I need to quit. Oh my God, I need to worry about my drinking. And that sucks because all I ever wanted was to be closer to people. All I ever wanted alcohol for was to be closer to people. And so fuck, I didn't know I was going to cry like this. Jeez. You know, it's funny. I've been working on this story so much. I haven't even really talked about the fact that I have 12 years, which is mostly, a you know, it's like a really good feeling, right? But when I was thinking about what I wanted to say on our podcast, for whatever reason, one of the things I wanted to make clear was that it's, I loved alcohol. And I guess I say that because I want people to know that if you do too, I'll always understand. That is something you will never find a more empathic person than me because I tried everything to keep it in my life. And so I have enormous sympathy for Depp who paid a hundred fucking thousand dollars a month so that some goddamn doctor would tell him he was sober while he was doing weed and booze. You know, when you are trying to get sober, you desperately look for what my friend Laura McCowan calls the third door. You know, like there's alcohol and there's AA. Where's the third option? I, I know want the a, third door. I know there's door. a third door here somewhere. Yeah. And she talks about how we, Laura is a wonderful writer who wrote a book called um, We're the Luckiest. And, uh, um, or maybe it's called The Lucky Ones. Forgive me, Laura. It's got lucky in the title. And, um, you know, she talks about that. So many of us, we just want that third door. And I, if you have enough money, if you have enough resources, you can probably buy your way into a third door, which is what it seems like Johnny Depp did. And the problem with the third door is that it's just going to be another dead end. And I think one of the the luckiest things that happened to me in my life was that 12 years ago, for a variety of reasons, I was so pushed into a corner that I stopped. I stopped. I quit. I sort of, and it didn't feel triumphant. It felt like a complete and total defeat. And when, you know, Michael Moynihan looks at me and says, you're a quitter. It's like, I know, I know, because I always, I always wanted to stay on that team. Always. But, but now I you couldn't. Get, but now you hang out, you get to hang out with the team anyway. Well, that's the thing. I mean, so, so, you know, and, and we should say Michael was only teasing me and, yeah, and yeah. I, I do think that teasing is a form of love. And I also think that one day Michael and I will have a longer conversation about alcohol because I would enjoy that. Um, but I, I, I think I have gotten like one of the great things that happened to me was that I stopped looking for all that power and adulation and comfort in alcohol. And once you took that away from me, I could actually build it up in myself. 
And that's why who I am at 47 is so different than who I was at 24. You know, at 24, I was I was sweet and I was cute and I was always smart. I mean, you know, look, I don't want to be hard on myself. But I had such, such a low sense of who I was in my own value. And I really thought that people would only find me interesting if they drank. I really thought that if I drank and I really thought guys would only want to sleep with me if they were drunk and I was drunk. And it has been uh, one of the most profound revelations of my life to walk away from that and have 12 years of realizing that none of that was true. That the closeness that you feel doesn't have to do with the substance you take. It has to do with the connection between two humans. So I am going to let you know a riding lawnmower is now <laughs> right outside my window. I thought so, maybe a helicopter was descending yeah, was to arrest descending. you so, for and it's not, uh, it's your probably, flagrant victim blaming of Amber Heard. It's probably not going to leave. So I'm going to, we had one other thing to talk about. I'm just going to say it super quick and we'll cut this a little shorter than usual. Uh, um, so we talked a lot about Teal Swan, her documentary. We went down the rabbit hole with that. We loved it. We loved watching it. It was only four episodes. I actually I miss Teal Swan. I now I love miss, relationship. I have a um, Teal Swan's shape <laughs> hole in my heart. Um, I I have tried now for the past couple months to kind of dive into. I like watching series and usually nonfiction or I like fiction too. I have not been able to uh, alight on anything. I tried the Anna Delvey one. I tried the Elizabeth Holt ones. I Wait, well, what's the Anna Delvey one? Anna Delvey was the Anna Delvey was the con woman, the R- Russian one that play, pretended she was like a Russian heiress, and she she kind of inventing Anna, inventing yeah. Anna. Yeah, I just I couldn't. I didn't like it. I, I, I like I, I read the book. I read like watched one and a third episodes. I'm like, okay, I'm out. I tried Bad Blood, one of my favorite books. I'll put a link here to it. And I I've written about Elizabeth Holmes. I podcasted about her. I just did not like the the mini. I was, again, I lasted like two episodes um and what's that one called you don't have to rush out of here nancy we have a few no 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 what's the tv show uh the adopter uh, or the no the inventor or oh the the dropout yeah, the dropout the dropout didn't the like dropout. it i i watched the first couple episodes of that and i thought that Amanda Seyfried was so good. I really, really like her as an actress. And I think she's such an interesting person. And I'm going to just work over that. I'm working over it. Yeah, I'm working over the, over over the, the lawnmower that's literally... No, running. I don't care. They can't stop me. It's <laughs> my sober confidence. They can't take away my voice. Don't take away my voice. Um, I watched... So anyway, it. yeah. The, the, I, I, but I didn't... I, I thought it was an interesting show and I had zero interest in watching the rest of it. Exactly. Like, and I, I just had story. no... Yeah, it was just, I just, it was like, get on with it or do something. It was just like, no, it's like, you know, this happens like sometimes when you go to the movies and like in a movie theater and it's, you realize within like 10 minutes you didn't get on the train. Like the train left the station. It's right. going, you're like, well, I didn't get on the train. So the other tried the staircase, which is, I watched like a half an hour of it. Like I'm done. I don't want to watch this. Oh, uh, which just, the, you know, have you watched the, uh, the documentary series? No. Is that? Oh, dude. Okay. Okay. Dude. Okay. okay. Gripping. What's it, what's it called? I think it's called the staircase. Okay. I'll try it's that. It's like a six-part documentary series. It's like a classic true crime story. This okay. is so up your alley. Okay. And it is a really, really gripping piece of journalism. 
Okay. And you just, I still, I watched it. I was engrossed by it. And I still don't know what I think about these people. You know, it's one of those really, you know, it, it, it challenges you and, and, and how, and, and it dissects the trial and like, oh yeah, it's like a total classic. I will um, get on But that. I didn't even watch the, I saw that there was a new one with Colin Firth and I just, I, did, I, I don't have do any, couldn't do I don't have any interest in watching a, uh, like a, like a fictionalized version of that when I know like the real deal is such a, is such a gripping tale. I mean, I think one of the things that's happening here is that these stories are being drawn from real life and we have versions of these, like you talk about how good bad blood is. And when you know the direct hit of that story, watching the like Hollywood anodyne version of that is just, it's such weak sauce. It's just not I mean, interesting. It doesn't have to be. I mean, they could no, do something fascinating with it, but, no, they, but did, they didn't. You but know? I think one of the things that's happening is that these, these shows are not surprising. And I think that oh. is deadly to them. Because especially in this era of like, like episodic television, you know, you got to keep me people moving through. And if they feel like they know where it ends the moment it begins, what's the point of watching it? I have a million well, other things to watch. Now, sometimes, you know, you have a show like Mad Men where the destination is not the point. Right. This is really just a rich character study. Like, I'm just going to watch them walk around an office for six years because honestly it's going to be that actually so speaking of that i started to rewatch mad men be for exactly that reason i wanted to say the last one that didn't work for me it wasn't terrible but it was like under the banner of heaven i love mm -hmm. that book i love it it's just really one of my favorite nonfiction books but i just i was just like i don't care and it's also like sort of like the way they were trying to like make it artful, like the angle and the music. I was like, yeah, no, I, I got to get on with it. So I'm, I'm, I'm asking my our listeners, um, if there are series you kind of know, Sarah and, and me at this point, you kind of know what we like. Yes, I veer toward nonfiction, though I, I also kind of dig like if it's if it's fictionalized, like really good, kind of thrilling or interesting yeah. or weird. Like I loved um, what was the one with uh, Jennifer ha Aniston's ex husband. The, the leftovers. Oh, I loved the leftovers. Oh my God. I loved that. So, you know, I've never watched that. Oh, it's so, okay. So my husband couldn't watch it. Like he watched a few with me. He's like, yeah, this isn't working for me. I'm like, that's fine. Go away. I'm watching it. But, um, if you, if you, if you know of ones, please let us know in the comments. Um, because I will like to watch it. I am actually going to duck out of here a few minutes early, wait, but I can wait, I not tell yet, you yet. wait one one thing, and then you can tell me everything. Um, okay. Uh, we did. I did go through all of your old comments, and we picked out some interesting letters and stuff, and questions and that kind of stuff. So we are going to have that episode super soon. Okay, Sarah Hepler, go. I just want to tell you what I'm watching because what are you watching? I. Think Okay, so I got sucked into a narrative drama, and I want to tell you about it. And it's called 1883, and it is the prequel to Yellowstone. And it is about pioneers, and it's about people crossing from basically Fort Worth um, to Oregon. So I don't know if you know the book Lonesome Dove. But yeah. uh, the Larry McMurtry book yeah, yeah, yeah. is one of my favorites. And this is a very interesting thing that's happened to me in my adulthood. So I grew up in Texas and everybody worshipped these damn pioneer stories. And it was all these stories about wagons and westerns. And everybody loved Lonesome Dove. And I was like double barreled 
flip off to all of you guys. I don't want to watch any of it. I hated Texas. I hated all Texas narratives. I wanted everything to be contemporary. Couldn't watch anything that was in black and white. You know, I was watching 21 Jump Street and like that was my jam. So and even as a young woman and in my early adulthood, like I just love contemporary fiction. In the last five years, I have had developed an almost counter allergy or the opposite allergy, which is that I have a very hard time settling into stories about now because I find the politics either so distracting or so like it's just it's it's incendiary or simple minded or like there's just something about I love immersing myself in earlier cultures and generations. And I am semi-obsessed with this whole westward expansion. You know, part of it is that this is part of the legacy of where I live. I live in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Fort Worth is our neighboring city. It's about 30 miles away. It's an incredibly cool city. It's much cooler than Dallas. It's very underrated. Um, It was a stop on the Chisholm Trail. And it was, uh, you know, it was this... Valhalla of gambling for a little while in a place called Hell's Half Acre. And that's where this show, 1883, starts. You know, they're in this lawless land where there's just like whoring and drinking and gambling and people are getting like, like, uh, hung in the in the square i mean this is such a weird time a transition period in between like a lawless land and one of law and order and the move westward and the the stuff that these people had to put up with i mean it's a it's a group of like german immigrants and then some then there's a family there and your protagonist is this you know it's this plucky female of course that like wants to be a cowboy and you know that's sort of eye rolly but i have to say i absolutely love this protagonist and she's a really great way for the modern viewer to to put themselves in the, into this place. And, and I, I just, I love when I'm taken back to a time that was just so hard. Survival was so hard. The idea that we sit around and we're like, somebody said something mean to me on the internet. And it's like, you know, these people were like, yeah. what am I going to eat tonight? Yeah. How am I, I going to get to the next place? Like I am so fascinated by that endurance battle and what it required of them. And it helps make so much sense of why the next generations of Americans have this really stiff upper lip, you know, and it's like we have wound up in this society, this opposite world town where it's like all your feelings are validated and everybody's, you know, like, I'm sorry that you feel that way and your trauma is is the most important thing about you. And you go back to this world of this brutal world where people are just dying and it's not fair and life has never been fair and nature has never played fair. And our modern delusion that it's supposed to and that we're supposed to be safe is really fascinating to me. So anyway, I'm hooked on this drama. Uh, I, I get that immersive feeling of like disappearing into something And some of it has like some, like there's a little bit of corniness to it, but honestly, I'm like Tim McGraw is the main guy. And if you told me that, I'd just be like, I'm not going to watch anything with Tim McGraw, but it is, I really am fascinated by this story. And I've heard Yellowstone is really good too. I haven't watched it yet. Well, I don't know Yellowstone either, but I will try 1883. And um, I will also put a plug for, I listened to a podcast 
uh, earlier in the year that was basically made to sound like an old-timey radio drama, like with different characters <gasps> and sound effects called 1865 about uh, Lincoln and people in his cabinet. And that it is absolutely magnificent. I've been wanting to plug it, so I have now. And again, the lawnmower is coming. We've bumped up against our time. But I will say I want to continue that conversation about what's actually hard, what people actually have to live through, because... I can speak to this, not not myself so much, because I I have to say I've had a pretty easy life except for the lawnmower. But um, but uh, I I definitely have some some feelings about this people in my world, uh, and 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 what it what what you really should be developing in yourself in terms of your hardiness and um and what kind of care you ask for and demand. So, well, uh, this is remember, this is an audio drama, what we're doing right now. And so I want to make sure people know that is not a lawnmower outside. That is a spaceship that is about to suck you up into its beam. This is our last episode. That's right. Or I'll be doing it from Mars. If I can get a hookup up there, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll get it. So, um, well, thanks everybody for joining us again. It's always a pleasure. Please go and subscribe. Please tell your friends. That's actually the best thing. You know how you get people to listen to because you tell your friends. It's like, why do you go to a dentist? Oh, because your friend told you. Why do you read this book? Because your friend told you. So if you tell your friends about that, we'll get more subscribers. We could do more great stories for you. Sarah Heppola, again, happy sobriety birthday. I am absolutely delighted. And um, we'll see you next time. Smoke them if you got them. I drank champagne The ocean's blue As blue as your eyes I'm gonna take it with me When I go Oh, long since gone